Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word so that we might understand who you are and what you're doing. We pray now that you would give us the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, so that we might hear your word, we might receive your word, and we might apply your word. And it is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated. I wonder, have you ever had your world flipped upside down? You know, real, true, life-changing moments. Uh, here are a few examples. Think about that transition from middle to high school. Now, I know some of you are a little further away from that than others. I won't point you out, but you might remember this, how there was a new school, a new building, new friends, new freedoms. Or how about your first taste of real independence when you moved out of your parents' home into your college dormitory or into your first apartment? Or how about that life change when you first got married or even how your life changed even more when you had your first child? All of these are life-changing moments where your world gets flipped upside down. Now, every generation and every person, we've all had events that flip our world upside down. And when this happens, there's usually one of two responses that it brings up in us, that wells up in us. These events and life changes can either bring chaos and a sense of danger and perhaps even fear. Think about the kids of Hawkins Middle School and Netflix Stranger Things, right? When, when they discovered that there's an entire alternate universe basically underneath them somewhere, and it's actually called the Upside Down. Their world is literally flipped upside down. And the initial response is a whole lot of fear for them and for us when we encounter things that we don't know or perhaps things that we don't understand and perhaps things that we don't want to happen. Or moments like this can be so happy that they produce in us a response that's more akin to euphoria. Just think about Lionel Richie when he realizes, oh, what a feeling, we're dancing on the ceiling. True story. I mean, I've said this before. One of my life-changing moments was my first concert, which was Lionel Richie and Tina Turner. We were way up there in the Omni in Atlanta, and all I could see from down on the stage was somebody walking like this, which was Tina Turner on her high heels, right? I mean, my mind was blown. So today in our sermon series called Outward Bound, we encounter this reality, that when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to people, it flips people's world upside down. And as we read in Acts chapter 17, during Paul's second missionary journey, for some people that brings fear, anger, animosity, and even chaos... And for others, it brings joy and delight and response, positive response. The gospel, friends, always flips our world upside down. And so we see this in our passage this morning. It's in your bulletin or it's on the screen, Acts chapter 17. 
Basically, we're picking up where we left off last week with the Holy Spirit directing Paul and Silas on this missionary journey, and it is taking them to Europe from uh, from Asia, through Asia, first to Macedonia, where we were last week, and in the town of Philippi. Now, a lot has happened there in Philippi. Lydia was converted. They performed a miracle when they delivered a slave girl from an evil spirit. And just to show you that no good deed goes unpunished, uh, that little girl's owner had Paul and Timothy tossed into prison because the evil spirit in the girl was their way of making money. And God performed a miracle in that prison that led to Paul and Silas's freedom and it led to the jailer's conversion and his whole family knowing Jesus. God uses all kinds of circumstances to bring people to saving faith through Jesus. Saving faith in Jesus. And today, Paul and Silas, they continue along the coast of Macedonia to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And if we were to have read all the way to the end of chapter 17, they get all the way down into Greece to Athens. So when they arrive in Thessalonica, we read in verse 2 that the first thing that Paul does when he gets there, that Paul and Silas do because they're Jewish, they went to the synagogue. So he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained to them and proved to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Paul uses the scriptures, which for him and for his audience in the synagogue was the Old Testament, to proclaim Jesus. And immediately we see that the two possible responses, either euphoria or fear, start coming up. Verse 4, some were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, including a great many devout Greeks and some leading women. These folks were joining the party. They were going, oh, what a feeling. Verse 5, not everybody was joining the party. But the Jews were jealous, and they took some wicked men from the rabble. Basically, people, no good people loitering downtown on the market. That's what happened when I was a kid. Take some of the rabble, and they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And they basically dragged Jason and some other believers before the city authorities and accused them, verse 6, These men who have turned the world upside down, that's Paul and Silas, they've come here and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. See, to those people, when Jesus' people come and share him with them, it is actually flipping their world upside down. It's disrupting things. So do these Jews, these jealous Jews, it produced fear and ironically through them, chaos emerged in the community. Would you just notice that for a second? It wasn't Paul and Silas creating the chaos. It was the people who were responding negatively to them that were creating this chaos. Now you may have experienced these two responses yourself in your own Christian life. Perhaps you have heard the gospel, and as the kingdom of God has broken into your kingdom of your world, 
or as the life in the spirit has collided with your life in the flesh, that is your life of sin, you've experienced chaos or anger or fear. Because Jesus changes everything for everyone. Jesus changes everything for us. He does flip our world upside down. We begin to think differently than the way we used to. We think differently about what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our family. And you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. As you hear about Jesus and you respond to Jesus and you start growing in his ways, that conflict and chaos might well up in you. Why? Because the way you've been operating in life is now your whole life, the way you've operated your whole life is now changing as Jesus introduces you to his life and his way of living. And for some, that brings anger and chaos. And for others, it is life-altering, life-changing, joy-producing in all the best ways. Because Jesus offers you forgiveness where you rightly experience guilt. He offers you love in a world that is full of conflict and brokenness and pain. He offers you life instead of death. That's what's offered by Jesus. And they are polar opposites. They are upside down from one another. And it shouldn't surprise you when that news comes that it will flip your world upside down. And friends, I just want to say that if in your current place in your life, in perhaps even in your Christian life, if you feel that there is fear and chaos, don't run away from what God is doing. Don't give up. Let the good news of Jesus take root in you, as Paul says in Ephesians. He will make you alive in him. So what Paul and Silas' ministry is doing is radically changing the landscape of their part of the world. Everywhere they go. And Christianity was spreading. And so the claim that these men made about Jason and others and Paul and Silas, that they were turning the world upside down, is actually true. And the claim is meant to be true of us as well. We are meant to flip the world upside down. Because that's what Jesus does, that's what the gospel does, and when you and I live into that, that's what we will do as well. To be outward bound is to be world flipping people. I want you to say, I'm a world flipping person. All right, ready? One, two, three. I'm a world flipping person. Okay, that's the main thing. If you get nothing else, is that through Christ, you are meant to be a world flipping person. And I want you to notice two things about Paul and Silas before we look at three practical ways to be world-flipping people, okay? So two things about Paul and Silas. Ultimately, the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel were responsible for all of the upheaval in our story. There is nothing extraordinary about Paul and Silas outside of the fact that they are full of the Holy Spirit... And they are full of the gospel. At Holy Cross, we believe that God intends. He expects that if we love him, we're going to go out into the world and change the life or and share the life-changing news and heart-altering love of Jesus with others. 
That's how we become world-flipping people. Yet many will say something like, well, I can't do that. I don't have what it takes. But friends, that's just not true. I know many of you. And you, just like Silas and Paul, you have the Holy Spirit. You are full of the Holy Spirit. And you are full of the gospel. You know the story. And that's what it takes to change the world. So how do we actually flip the world upside down? I want to look at three things that Paul and Silas do. Three practical points of application that we see in our passage this morning. The book, the book of Acts gives us a practical vision for mission. The first one is this. The first practical vision for mission to be a world-flipping person is context. I want you to notice this, that when Paul comes into a town and he starts in a place that is natural for him, which is the synagogue. He does that in verse 1 in Thessalonica. And if you read in verse 10, that when they arrived in Berea, guess where they went? They went to the synagogue. What Paul's doing is he's contextualizing the gospel. He's attempting to communicate the gospel in ways that make sense to the people within their local cultural context. So going to the synagogue is contextualizing the message in two ways. First, Paul starts where he naturally belongs and what he knows best. So as a Jew, as a rabbi, Paul has spent his whole life in the synagogue. And Paul belongs in the synagogue, so he starts where he knows best, where he's most at home. Second, he starts where people are naturally exploring spiritual matters and are searching for the Messiah, which is also conveniently the synagogue. There the Jewish people are engaged in a relationship with God, and they are looking out and expecting, as the prophets had told them to expect, a Messiah. They are spiritually searching. So if the town has one, the synagogue is the natural place for Paul to start. And I would just note that in both Thessalonica and in Berea, there were both Jewish and Greek, that is Gentile converts, in both places. So he started where he knew best, and he saw fruit come about. Friends, If you are going to go out into the world of Mount Pleasant to share the gospel of Jesus with others, where would you go? Well, I would say first, Paul's example is to start where you naturally are. Think about your work or perhaps your gym or other places you frequent. You guys may know that I love coffee and I love coffee shops. And I love working in them and meeting. I've met some of you in them and had great conversations. For me, the coffee shop is a natural place for me to strike up conversations with other people, people that I don't know, and perhaps people that don't know Jesus. In fact, a number of years ago, this happens all the time to me. A number of years ago, I was in Evo Bakery. I don't know if you ever go to North Charleston Park Circle. I know it's like the other side of the planet from here. Um, and uh, But Evo Pizza and behind it, they have this sweet little bakery. And I was working there and having a cup of coffee and probably not too few Danishes. And um, it was delicious and fattening. And the guy behind the counter, he was super chatty. It was so annoying. I I was trying to get some work done. He was just chatting me up. And then after a while, 
I realized that God was giving me an opportunity to love this guy and to be curious about this guy and along the way to share some spiritual truth with this guy. I didn't give him a three-point sermon. I didn't give him the Roman road to salvation. I just encouraged him that there is a God and that he loves him. Simple. Start with where you are. Start where you naturally go. Second, start where people are spiritually searching. Where is that? I thought about a lot of examples thought about how uh, a number of you uh, are in book clubs with other people. If you ever looked at the selections of the books that people decide to read, that'll often reveal a great deal of hunger in their heart. That's a place where you're engaged in a relationship with people. And you might be even engaged with a book that helps give you a foundation for sharing a little of God's love with somebody. While I'm cautious about the mishmash of Eastern spirituality that often accompanies yoga and encourage you to be cautious as well, there can be no denying that yoga studios and that practice appeals to people who are hungry for something more than just strengthening their core. They're hungry for something more. They're working out their heart. They're spiritually searching, and it's a place where you can build some relationships and you can contextualize the gospel of Jesus. Or how about our great civic clubs, uh, Kiwanis, Lions, Rotary Exchange? These aren't only wonderful places of service, caring for the needs of our community. They also happen to be places where people seek fulfillment and purpose. These are spiritual longings. And as Christians, you know that the only place, in fact, the only person in whom we find true fulfillment and purpose is Jesus Christ. And these clubs and the relationships that you build in them are perfect opportunities to contextualize the gospel and introduce others to Jesus. So how do you become a world-flipping person? You contextualize the gospel. You start where you naturally are and start where people are naturally searching. The second practical vision for mission that we see in our passage this morning is content. Paul and Silas start with the Bible in both places. In verse 2, Paul used the Bible to reason with people. Just so you know, the Bible and the Word of God is reasonable to others. You can reason with people. He uses it to explain to people and to show them their need for a Messiah and that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul was full of the Holy Spirit and full of the gospel, full of the content, full of the word of God. So he communicates the content of the scriptures, the details of the good news with other people. He starts with the word of God, the content of the faith. And friends, hear this. Here's a practical bit of good news for you as you step into God's mission more and more. It's the word of God that people respond to. If you were to go to Isaiah 55, the prophet Isaiah says that just like rain and snow is going to nourish the earth, that's the purpose for which it's sent, so will the word of God, Jesus is the word, the Bible's the word, God's promises are the word, the word of God will always accomplish what God intends. Isaiah says, uh, for God, God says, my word shall not return to me empty, 
but it shall accomplish what I, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When you speak God's word to others, God will make sure that it bears fruit. You may not see it, but it will bear fruit. Now, I'm a preacher. I like to give good sermons, but it's not on me to bear fruit in you. That's God's job. And friends, if you will be outward bound and share the content of faith with others, the, the Bible with others, God promises to bear fruit for, in you in the process. Why? Because the Bible, it's the good stuff. As Archbishop Cranmer, the kind of founder of our Anglican faith in the Reformation, he said this, the scriptures are the fat pastures of the soul. Let's think about that. Oh, it's the fat pastures. It's where you get everything you need. In the scriptures, all manner of persons, men, women, young, old, learned, unlearned, rich, poor, priests, laymen, lords, ladies, officers, tenants, mean men, virgins, wives, widows, lawyers, merchants, artificers, I don't know what that is, husbandmen, I don't know what that is, and all manner of persons of what are state or condition, soever they be, may in the Bible learn all things necessary, everything they need to believe to be saved and to know God. The Bible, the Word of God, is the fat pasture of your soul, and it's the fat pasture of everyone's soul. And a practical need we have as Christians and as missionaries, as people who are outward bound, is to know God's Word as completely and fully as you can. The more you know, the more you can share. That doesn't mean you have to wait until you know more to share. You can start right now. You know what? God loves you, you can say to somebody. God sent his son for you, and his name is Jesus, to save you so that you don't have to die but have life. It's a great starting point. We need to know God's word more completely each and every day. That's, so we have the context, the content. The third and final bit of practical vision for mission is Consequences. Now, if you've been paying attention, these are all words that begin with the letter C. Uh, context, content, consequence. This is a simple point. When you contextualize the gospel, when you share the content of the good news with others, the consequences, what will happen, will vary. See, we see in our passage in both uh, Thessalonica and Berea, some people simply won't respond. In fact, some people will reject it outright. Some people will oppose it and rouse up other people against it. And perhaps even against you. That is one of the possible consequences of being outward bound. But there is another much more delightful consequence that we see in both our stories. That some will believe. And they will celebrate and have a party. They will join the faith. Friends, those are, some of you are going, he's going to sing the song again. It's written right here. I should sing it. They're going to say, oh, what a feeling to know God's love, to be a part of this family. Some will come to faith. These are the consequences. And as Christians, it's our responsibility, it's our call, it's our joy to be outward bound and to share the good news. And it's God's responsibility, and it is in his timing to actually bring people to faith. Friends, you may say something today or this week that God will use in five years' time 
to draw somebody to him. You may never know the consequences of your faithfulness today. Paul acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians when he says, look, one person plants the seed, another person waters it, but it's God who makes the seed grow. You may be the person today to plant the seed. You may be the person today to water the seed. But friends, you will not make it grow. God is the one who makes things grow. God is the one who draws people to himself. God is the one who flips lives upside down. We're just called to participate in that. So in order to be world-flipping people with God, start with the context, stick with the content of the Bible, and expect God to word work. Let me finish with one, uh, one additional thing. Make it personal. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren, you might know her. She's an Anglican priest, but she's also a columnist in Christianity Today and the New York Times. And uh, earlier this week, I read an article in CT in Christianity Today titled, Why We Preach for Proper Names. And she wrote that one of the most important and prophetic callings in our moment is to remain characteristically local. That is committed to a particular people in a particular place. Poet Wendell Berry said that the things we love tend to have proper names. And so we cannot love the church and we cannot love the world abstractly. Instead, when we minister to others, we must learn to do it for a people, for a person with a proper name in a proper place. Disciples, she writes, are not usually formed in a mass audience. They are people who have proper names. They must have proper names. Friends, let us pray that we might be a people who take a particular God, that is Jesus, and make him known to particular people with proper names and proper places and expect God to change lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not leave us to wander, but that you sent your son Jesus to find us, to redeem us, to give us life. Father, I just pray that you would show us as a people this day, this week, indeed every day and every week, real people with real names in real places who have real needs that only you can meet. And would you make us bold, bold, Father, to speak to them, to share your son Jesus with them. And would you do the work of bearing fruit and bringing the world to faith through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.